The startup journey was really tough back then because like if, if you went to an investor and said, hey, I want to start a toilet paper company that gives away half of its profits and it's called Who Gives a Crap? You know, they would just be like, get, get the hell out. Like, what are you, why are you even talking to me? This is not an investable concept. And so you kind of had to do it the hard way, just kind of grind it out to, to get started. That's Simon Griffiths, co-founder and CEO of Who Gives a Crap? a subscription-based toilet paper brand that donates 50% of its profits to help build toilets in the developing world. Since they launched in 2012, they've sold more than 300 million rolls of toilet paper and donated more than 11 million Australian dollars, just over £6 million, to charity. In September 2021, they raised over $40 million in their first fundraising round. That all sounds super exciting, and it is. But what those numbers don't tell you is the patience and perseverance it took to get them there. They spent three years working on their product before they even launched. Then they bootstrapped for the first nine years. Simon didn't get paid for the first 18 months of that. They built a really important product with a strong message over a long time. And that's something that really impresses me. Because, and I was thinking about this a lot during the interview, as entrepreneurs, we feel the need to rush in, make quick decisions and do everything super quickly. But sometimes it just takes time to figure stuff out. Now, of course, that's more true with physical products. But I think that lesson is important for every entrepreneur to hear. Disclaimer. I am a customer of Who Gives a Crap. I'm a big fan. But this interview really does deliver. And not just because Simon tells me about what he does with his toilet paper. Are you a scruncher or a folder? But really because we get into the nitty gritty of building a business. The tough stuff. Like how their first production run almost ended the company before they'd even got started. And I have to say, he gave one of the best answers I've ever heard to my final question, which I ask all guests on the best advice they've ever received or would give you, our listeners. So, welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta. In 2012, when Who Gives a Crap launched, Simon and his co-founders wanted to get the product seen by as many people as possible, so they decided to do a crowdfunding campaign. But they faced a big problem. We knew it was the most boring crowdfunding product ever because it's toilet paper. Let's like not forget that we sell toilet paper. <laughs> a marketer working on their campaign came up with an idea that Simon should film the campaign sitting on a toilet and pledge to not get off until they'd pre-sold the first $50,000 worth of product. That was enough to send us viral. You know, we, we, we launched, I think, on 6 a.m. on a Tuesday morning with me sitting on a toilet on a live web feed and when, had no idea how long I'd be there. We hoped it would be less than 24 hours. It ended up being 50 horrible, never ever to be repeated hours of my life. But, you know, we went viral all around the world, generated 2.5 million social media impressions, became crazy popular in Brazil and Greece, which we still haven't figured out exactly why those two geographies kind of took off so much. Um, maybe new markets for us in the future and um, and found our first 1,000 customers, which was, you know, the, the most important part of the, the campaign. Sitting on a toilet for 50 hours. I know us founders like to go an extra mile, but that is something else. Simon's dedication to who gives a crap has been decades in the making. Someone said recently that a lot of startup founders, particularly in Silicon Valley, you know, they talk about their vision as always being there from the start, but the reality is that you sort of stumble through things until you, you kind of crystallize what it is and then you pretend it's been there the whole way through. And so it's very easy now, um, you know, I turned 40 recently, it's very easy to kind of 
reflect on the last 40 years and say, that's what my life has been about. But I couldn't have told you that when I was, you know, seven or 10 or 20 or whatever it was along the way. And so, when I think about what actually got me to that point, um, you know, it started, the journey started when we moved from the UK to Australia when I was four and would travel back every two years to see our family. And in the 1980s, there weren't that many direct flights, you know, relatively direct flights to get back to the UK. And so, we um, sort of traveled through a lot of different parts of Southeast Asia and Africa to get back over the years. And so, I had these very formative experiences as a kid, kind of, you know, spending time in Malaysia and Zimbabwe and Egypt and um, seeing, you know, the way that different parts of the world operated and realizing that, um, you know, that there were kids there that were like just the same as me who were just out there to have a good time and, and were great to play with even if we couldn't speak the same language. And I think it was later on in life as I sort of got to university that I started thinking about some of those experiences and realizing that, you know, the, the ability to go to university and to go into a high paid job was actually something that I was going to be able to access that maybe wasn't as equally accessible to some of those kids that I played with in those earlier years of my life. Um, you know, the real reason that our business exists is because there's 2 billion people without access to adequate sanitation today and you know, often clean water as well. Clean water is a lot less people. Um, t- toilets are kind of a, a bigger, more widespread problem. Um, massively devastating. You know, can you imagine going a day without a toilet? I personally can't, let alone the rest of my life. But it also, you know, not having access to decent sanitation leads to a lot of diarrhea-related disease that's the number one filler of hospital beds in sub-Saharan Africa. It's the second largest killer of kids under the age of five, killing about 700 kids under the age of five every day. Um, and so, I think, you know, when you think about the two billion people that don't have access to, you know, relatively basic sanitation, you know, they don't have the luxury of being able to get a foot onto the economic ladder. And so, when you think about, you know, yourself or other entrepreneurs or um, people who've innovated and brought something into the world, whether that's artists or musicians or entrepreneurs or inventors or scientists, there's 2 billion people out there who will never ever have that opportunity. And if we can solve that sanitation problem, we actually start to unlock that potential in this huge chunk of the global population. And so, the way that I think about it is that we're actually just helping to bring more innovation, more entrepreneurs, more inventors, more scientists, more artists, more musicians into the world that are currently unable to do so because the way that they have to go about their life is is very different to, to what you and I are able to. Um, and so, realizing there was this inequity in terms of the social mobility that can be accessed depending on where you're born in, you know, whatever country it is, even whatever postcode it is, that, um, that that was a problem that I thought was really interesting to solve because if you could get it right, then you could actually start to to unleash some of the you know potential and the billions of people that that you know currently are, are just trying to get their foot onto the first rung of the economic ladder. Um, and so that journey started really young, but probably took you know twenty something years for me to kind of put it all together and, and and realize that that was that was actually what I was truly interested in. And so I think it wasn't until my late twenties when I'd you know, gone and studied development economics and spent a lot of my university holidays in Southeast Asia, initially because it was cheaper for me to do that than it was to stay in Australia and visit my family. Um, but then realizing that actually, you know, there was this draw into um, Southeast Asia and, and other parts of, you know, d- the developing worlds that was, was, was built more around kind of this passion for um, understanding some of the, you know, 
the socioeconomic challenges that come with with living or being born into different parts of the world. And I think what was also really interesting about it was back in um, you know the early 2000s when I finished at university or the mid 2000s, the, the word kind of startup didn't exist. You know, starting your own business was almost seen as kind of um, a little bit icky and gross because you were selling things to people that they, you know, didn't need and it was sort of frowned upon in a way. And so um, it wasn't until the late 2000s that I think the kind of brand of startups started to become a bit more positive and people realized that actually, you know, technology was going to shape the world hopefully for the better and um, entrepreneurs and, and business people could play a role in, in creating more positive versions of the world through technology. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting to think about how that narrative has shifted over the last 20 years because it's obviously completely different now and startups are kind of actually, you know, the jobs that, that are highly coveted, um, which is certainly not the way that it was when I was at university. <laughs> but what, what do you think actually out of that, um, out of interest in that opinion of, okay, let's see your kids. For example, I can hear them in the background. What will you be advising them? Obviously, other than the follow your own path, etc. In terms of entrepreneurship, um, I want to become an entrepreneur. Would you say, well, go work in a business or go work in a startup or go try it for yourself first with no other experience? Like, just what is your opinion? I think it depends on what people are trying to achieve. You know, so so we got into entrepreneurship not because um, we were trying to make money that's never ever been kind of our goal we got into it because we saw a version of the world that didn't exist and if someone else was going to create that version of the world and was already a few steps in front of us we would have gone and worked for them and helped them try to carry out that mission and and learn from that and then if we felt like we needed to go in a different direction then gone and started our own thing but but that wasn't an option you know no one was thinking about the world in the same way that we were and no one kind of saw the opportunity that we did. And so we had to go out and kind of start from scratch and, and build it ourselves. And so for us, entrepreneurship was, was really about, you know, wanting to will something into existence. And if you've got that, that bug, that itch, and that's what you need to do, it's very hard to go and work for someone else because you want to will your own thing into existence. You don't want to will someone else's vision into existence. Um, and so I think it just, it comes back to, you know, what you're trying to achieve. Um, if people want to, you know, go and make a lot of money, which is something that I've never thought too deeply about, I'd say that you're probably better off not being the founder, but being employee number, you know, two, three, four, five, because, um, someone else can de-risk the idea you can get involved. And, and if it's not working out, you can jump ship and it's much harder to do that as the founder of a company. Um, and so I think there's lots of different pathways to do it. Um, if I have my time again, and there was people out there who were, doing a version of what was close to what we were doing, I would have loved to have gone and worked for them and understood what was working, what wasn't working, and ultimately, you know, used that insight to help us get one step closer to, to bringing our own idea into the, into the world. But it just didn't exist. And so we had to start from scratch. Um, so it was more out of necessity than anything else that we chose that path. But it's definitely not right for everyone. It's a very privileged path, um, you know, particularly thinking about, uh, being in Australia where we've got an amazing kind of safety net in terms of, um, you know, public health systems. Um, if things don't work out, you can, you know, go on what's called the dole here. I think it's got different names in different parts of the world um, and, and draw an income while you're trying to find a job that will start paying the bills at home. And so it's much easier to take that pathway in a country like Australia where you've got those those safety nets. And I didn't have, you know, a mortgage or a family or 
financial obligations outside of, you know, just, just taking care of myself at that point in time. Um, and that's not necessarily a pathway that everyone has either. So I think everyone needs to kind of figure out their own way of, of making it work and bringing it to life. And so like, at what point do you take this plunge? What are the actual events leading up to it? <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't, I think you know, it was after university when, um, when I started to connect the dots between, you know, realizing that if you're trying to solve these big social problems, typically you're relying on the philanthropy market. And when you ask people, you know, what's holding them back, what's holding a lot of the nonprofits that are doing really good work back from achieving more, it's a lack of funding and they spend a huge amount of time chasing funding. And so if you think about how you can increase the size of their funding, you sort of have to grow the size of the philanthropy market. And that's a very, very hard thing to do because if you're going to double the size of the philanthropy market, you have to get every single person that gives money today to give twice as much forever. Otherwise, you won't be successful. And that's just not possible. And so what I realized is, you know, we should leave the philanthropy market as it is. It's doing a good job. But what if we could tap into the trillions of dollars that are changing hands in the economy every year and start taking some of the, the profits of those, those purchases of goods and services and funneling those into you know, achieving social outcomes. And so we're kind of starting to have multiple pools of funding that can solve the same problem and growing the size of the funding pool by um, changing the way that, that people engage in philanthropy from being a donation to actually being through their purchases of everyday goods and services. And that leads you to toilet paper? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we're going, we're going a very long way around. But um, yeah, I think what happened after that was, um, was you know, realizing that, that in order to have scale, you had to work with products that everyone uses regardless of where they are. Um, so, you're not limited by, you know, bricks and mortar. You're, you're able to access anyone everywhere. Um, and uh, then one day, you know, seeing, I think, Ethos Water in the United States in 2009, I think sold to Starbucks in that year. They were donating, you know, 10 cents from every bottle sold, something like that. And so realizing that if Starbucks, you know, one of the largest kind of beverage companies in the world was looking at this new kind of water as something that was really interesting, you know, what else could kind of fit into that category? And then a few months later, walking into the bathroom and seeing a six pack of toilet paper and saying, oh my God, we should sell toilet paper, use the profits to build toilets and call it, who gives a crap. And so the, the Is that concept- literally what happened though? Did you, did you literally walk into a toilet one day and look at that and have an epiphany? Yeah, literally caught a second epiphany. The first thing I did was I walked back out of the bathroom. I called three friends and said, I just had this idea. What do you think? They all said, I love it. You've got to do it. I can't believe no one's done it before. And when you hear, I can't believe no one's done it before, you know you're onto something really special because the idea is or so- stupid. <laughs> the idea is so simple that it's something that people want to tell other people about. You know, it seems so elegant that it's something that should already exist. And that gives you a sense that it's got the potential for virality. And then the third friend said, I've just finished my job at Boston Consulting Group. I want to come and help you get started. And so we met up at a supermarket and stared at the toilet paper shelves and said, Everyone here is, you know, basing their marketing on puppies, pillows, and feathers. If we can base our marketing on something that the product is actually used for and, and make it funny, then we think we've probably got a marketing strategy that's somewhat defensible. And so that was kind of when it all clicked into place with, you know, the brand, the cause, the product, and then realizing that we actually had, you know, the potential to kind of build marketing that that no other brand could ever come after because their brands have been built on everything that was unrelated to toilets and toilet paper. 
First question, where was this toilet? And have you thought about getting a plaque and putting it there, you know, <laughs> stamp in the ground? It's actually genuinely like, it's an interesting thing, right? Like wherever this random toilet is, you know, very cool to think that's where the first epiphany landed. Yeah, so it was, it was in my share house that I was living in at, at that point in time. So um, I don't know if the landlord had let us do that or care about it. <laughs> so how, how do you make a product like this then? So you have an epiphany. Um, what year is this, firstly? So, so that was the end of 2009. So... You know, you've got to wind back 13 years. Um, no one knew what Alibaba was. So, the way that you sourced was to go to trade shows. Shopify, like, barely existed at that moment in time. So, um, selling stuff online was not common. The term direct consumer wasn't around. You know, Dollar Shave Club, Warby Parker didn't exist yet. Um, and as a result, you know, the internet was just in a wildly different place to, to where it is today. Um, crowdfunding, you know, Kickstarter wasn't around. So it was just a like completely different landscape. So honestly, it felt really hard to get started. Um, so the, the actual kind of plan, you know, we won a grant from the Australian Centre for Social Innovation who gave us $50,000 to try and bring the idea to life. And the plan was to use that $50,000 to actually work with an existing recycled toilet paper company in Australia, co-brand their products with, you know, who gives a crap logo and donate, um, 20 or 50 cents from each purchase to WaterAid to see if we could move the needle on demand for that product by having a cause related to it or tied to it. Um, and so we were going to do that. And then, you know, for numerous reasons that that kind of campaign fell apart and we realized that we'd have to actually, you know, leapfrog that step and just go straight to manufacturing ourselves. Um, and so went to, to sourcing and, and, and got a crash course in sourcing from someone who'd done it before found our manufacturer, you know, set up our first Shopify store, I think in, in 2012, once we had our manufacturer in place to test whether the who gives a crap brand name would actually work. Cause a lot of marketing people said, you can't call a toilet paper company who gives a crap that'll never ever fly. Funny, it's such a, <laughs> it's such a on brand. I mean, it just feels right for an Aussie brand, right? That tongue in cheek vibe to it is great. Yeah. And so we, um, we, you know, we, we tested the who gives a crap name against give a crap and also role model to see if there was any noticeable kind of difference in conversion. We saw there wasn't. So we said, let's go with the original brand name. And then the next task was to get, you know, we wanted to get a million eyeballs on it. And so we said, the way to do that is to run a, a crowdfunding campaign and generate a lot of traffic. And then we'll see whether this is something that the masses will kind of will, will take up. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, 
You know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. That crowdfunding campaign gave them those first important customers, but they still had a lot to work out. From that moment onwards, we, you know, we were in business, but we honestly didn't think that people would buy toilet paper online. We thought that supermarkets were still going to be, you know, the, the pathway to success. And so it wasn't until about eight months later when, you know, we'd, we'd taken a step back and when we were thinking about packaging and said, look, if we're going to be just online initially, we don't need to pack our product in these plastic packs of six or 10 or 20 rolls. Instead, we could wrap every roll individually. We decided to do them in five different fun, well-designed wrappers to create a bit of, um, you know, delight in the box. And then we sent it out to our crowdfunding campaign supporters, expecting that, um, you know, it'd kind of be a slow burn. And all of a sudden, we started to see our daily sales double day on day for five days. And after five days, we sold out of what we thought was going to last us, you know, inventory for three months. And so we realized there was actually a lot more interest in an online toilet paper company than what we thought was possible because our customers were, you know, telling friends and family about what we were doing. They were taking rolls of toilet paper to work and giving them to colleagues. And so we'd sort of created this crazy word of mouth groundswell around toilet paper, which, you know, prior to 2020 had never happened before. And, um, and that had led us to, to sell out, but, but is actually still the number one way that we, we find new customers today is, is through word of mouth and our, our customers finding out about us from their friends, family and colleagues. It actually doesn't surprise me that there's a, there's a lot of um, viral moments built into the product as a customer. Like you say, it's the individual loo roll. So I've got one here. Um, and, that, you know, there's, there's two things on this, I think, that are genius. Like, but the first is like, you know, that actually within each box, there's these different styles, right? So they actually look um, well-designed, interestingly, which is unusual for toilet paper. Yeah. You know, so actually keeping these rolls out is interesting and almost like a feature in your bathroom versus just something that people ignore. And then secondly is obviously the communication on there, right? So pointing out that you're a B Corp, pointing out that uh, 50% of profits donated to help build toilets, but most important, um, banter. So this one particularly says, we believe in plying it forward. And, you know, I can see you know, you're laughing at even your own team's joke, but it's a great it's a great example of like finding moments. Everyone talks about this stuff in consumer brands. How do you find moments for um, surprise and delight? And genuinely, every role has surprise and delight built into it in such a thoughtful way. I guess my question is, how much of that has been evolution, right? So I told you I became a customer, I think 2017, 2018, something like that. Um, my experience as a customer has been very consistent, right? It's, you know, it's not changed since, you know, 
Well, yeah, it's actually not changed since uh, since then. I don't think uh, any of the roles have necessarily changed in design or anything like that. And that's been a good thing for me. But how much of that up until my experience from like, you know, t- 2012 up until that point was developing? Yeah, the, the, we would have changed the wrapper designs in that time. And we've definitely changed the, the what's written on the wrappers a few times over and what's written on the boxes a few times over. So, so yeah, how, how, do, how do we kind of think about it? The... Um, you know, one of our co-founders, Danny, he comes from a design thinking background. So product designer and then, you know, went and worked at Method, the soap company, and then at IDEO.org, the design thinking consultancy. And so when we were first designing the packaging, you know, after the crowdfunding campaign, before we shipped product, we did something that I think now is probably pretty common, but back then was, you know, really abnormal. And that was that we essentially dissected the customer experience from, you know, thinking about buying toilet paper to jumping on a computer to going to Google, you know, stepped out every stage of it, delivery of the order, unboxing, where does it get stored? How do you store it? um, How do you unwrap it? All of those parts of the customer experience. And then we said, where do we innovate through this customer experience? You know, what are parts of this where we can do things that no one's done before that, um, that create a moment of delight, but do it in a way that, that, that doesn't, um, slow down the consumer experience. So you want to create a frictionless consumer experience that allows you to to move through, you know, the product, um, everything from the website to delivery to usage should be able to happen very quickly if you want to. But if you want to slow down and explore all of the other touch points around it, you can read every single, you know, side of the box and there's something written on there. You can read all the different parts of the role and there's something written, you know, all through them. We create limited editions each year to kind of do fun wrappers that are only available for a really short period of time that that will have copy on them that's never been read before. And then we change the copy on the boxes and the wrappers on a regular basis so that although the customer experience looks like it's the same, if you actually pay attention to the smaller details, you're seeing those details shift so that you're not getting fed that same piece of copy over and over again, which we think gets stale after a while. You do have you do have an insight that works for you as well, which is you know most people do not read stuff that comes from their brands because they're aware that their brands trying to talk to them and become their mate. But obviously, when you're in the toilet, you are actually looking <laughs> yeah. for distractions. You're looking for entertainment, and so people are consciously looking to learn. And if the information's on on your toilet paper itself, that is just like a, another great connect. Yeah, and I think that you know one of the the big sort of things that we did was not only did we sort of think about all of the different parts of the customer experience and and where we could innovate, but we also said what if we could change the way that, you know, someone thought about their toilet paper? So, how do we, how might we design packaging that is so attractive that someone is proud to put it on display versus leaving it in the back of their cupboard, which is where it's previously lived? And so, you know, packaging, I think we probably had 50 how might we's in the way that we thought about bringing the brand to life. That one is the one that really worked. And so, you know, again, it's easy to kind of look back and say, we were very intentional that we had to do this one thing, but the reality is that we tried a lot of different how might we's and packaging is the one that that really kind of paid off in a way that I think has been um, really amazing. And, and, and um, you know, not, not just from a brand building point of view, but from a customer experience point of view, we've been able to insert a bit of delight into people's bathrooms, which is previously a relatively delight free space. You know, it's a, a pretty boring room in the house. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, we, we hopefully um, make people smile in a moment where they previously hadn't. And hopefully that helps to make just a tiny bit of everyone's day a little bit better, which I think is a, a great thing to do. 
I, I want to pick up on something that you said earlier. Um, you know, you very uh, casually mentioned, right, we started in 2009. You know, there wasn't really stuff going on right at that point. Like very, very, very early to D2C, I would argue, surely at that point, one of the first ever companies on D2C. Um, 2012, we do this crowdfunding campaign. Talk to me about those three years. Like, talk to me about your personal life. Are you in a job that's paying you whilst you're doing this? Are you married? Are you a layabout? Like, you know, uh, how do you get through three years of uh, being this early on the scene, trying to build a toilet paper company? I want to know, like, are you able to romance anyone with this kind of narrative? I'm a penniless toilet paper entrepreneur. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the... You know, the landscapes, e-commerce wasn't something that people invested in. So, you kind of had to do it the hard way and, you know, not pay yourself a salary. And and I should say, you know, 2019, sorry, 2009 to 2012, we weren't trading. So, our first kind of sales happened in 2012. And so, that was a period where we were just trying to bring it to existence. And so, I worked in the evenings, I think, you know, tutoring at um, the University of Melbourne. I taught economics and finance for a few years there to kind of pay the bills and, and I essentially figured out, you know, again, like applying the, applying the entrepreneurial mindset, I worked out, you know, what's the highest paid job that I can have that would therefore allow me to work the least number of hours a week, giving me the most time in the rest of the week to focus on building my own business and worked out that tutoring was the the one that, that you know, had the highest hourly rate. Yeah. So, I kind of, you know, moonlighted in the evenings, you know, 4, 4 p.m. to 9 p.m., three nights a week to get paid as much as what a lot of my friends were getting paid in their kind of graduate jobs. And then it gave me, you know, 40 hours a week from nine to five, Monday to Friday to kind of work on, on bringing my own stuff to, to, to life. Um, and that was, you know, it was, it was all over the place. And a lot of my friends are like, what are you doing? You know, you've got, you're highly qualified. You've had really good job offers. <laughs> like what, what are you doing with your life? Um, but um, yeah, it was a, it was a really fun time. I think, um, you know, the, that period of my life, I think I started to connect a lot more with people who were kind of running their own creative practices because they understood the, the challenge of, you know, doing something that you're really passionate about that wasn't necessarily going to, to pay for itself um, straight away. And you're kind of, you know, you're doing it for reasons that are different to what most people do things. And um, yeah, I met, I met my wife, I think in, in 2010, um, to answer your romantic question. Um, so she was wooed by the, the penniless toilet paper, um, you know, aspirational <laughs> mogul. Um, and, um, and, and she was running her own business. And so we had a, a really good understanding of, you know, what was going on in each other's lives and really supportive to kind of help each other make things happen, which was a really fun period of our lives. And I think it was, it was we were probably the most broke that we, we have been in our lives to date, but but also really fulfilled because we were working on something that we, you know, individually thought was really important. And, um, and I think, um, you know, got invited to, to do lots of fun stuff and, and um, lived a, you know, lived a lifestyle that we, we couldn't afford because there were people that believed in us who thought we were doing something important, who would kind of, you know, invite you to events and kind of look after you a, a bit. So, um, yeah, we were very lucky through that that period, I think. But yeah, there's a lot a lot more to that story, but that's the short version of it. <laughs> it's interesting. I you know last week um, I was doing a, a course. Uh, unusually, I was taking time off work to learn about money, um, and the reason that I was doing it is because um, I would say I would self self 
self-professed bad with money, inverted commas, um, because I'm uh, very much a, um, I think, I've, you know, based on a lot of in- entrepreneurs that I interview, they're a very typical entrepreneur, I, you know, I don't really think about money. I think about what is going to make me happy, what am I interested in, and then hopefully the money flows. Um um, that has its own challenges, especially in this market. And, you know, my wife is very uh, actually sensible and practical with a really good <laughs> job and stuff. And so, um, you know, that that's a good balance. But uh, I came across this concept that someone shared, which resonated, which is, you know, uh, you either have a, there's only two paths in life. One is a money path and one is a life path. And most people um, follow the money path by accident or whatever, which is essentially as simple as, uh, money is at the center of what you do and you figure out life around it and the other path obviously is life is at the center of what you do and money figures a way to flow around it um and i you know i was really struck by that because i was like oh god i feel i feel seen i do the life path thing and uh, essentially hope for the best sounds like you do too and it's really interesting because i'm reflecting on this where you know a lot of people in developed worlds and you know we talked both of us already about you know you finish your university you get offered the the banking jobs the management consultancy jobs etc great money thrown at you which kind of takes away some of the the choices and the anxiety about well if i don't do this i don't know what i'll do so how will i find my path i don't really know what that where that path will take me there's a lot of uncertainty there so there's that sort of um one i would say inspiring take that i'm learning from listening to you which is actually just giving yourself sort of the freedom to to find out what resonates in your life and listen to the signs of like does this work for me does this not work for me like where is my life taking me because that can lead to such awesome purpose and like you're saying i've had the same experience where if you're doing stuff that other people find rewarding or interesting or valuable to the world, the money stuff kind of works itself out in an interesting way. You get invited to places you'd never would if you were just focusing on money um, and things like that. So, you know, I found that very inspiring. And then obviously the other side of it as well, though, is the two billion people who, you know, don't don't really have a choice, um, you know, given, given a choice on money path or life path, you know, would ultimately have to choose money path because it would help lift them out of poverty. So, I thought I'd just share the, you know, that sort of reflection and insight that I just had from listening to you. I wanted to yeah. uh, get your thoughts on that. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave the two billion people piece because I completely agree with that. But, but you know, p- personally, um, the, you know, the big realization that I had was when I was working in an investment bank, I had more money than I knew what to do with, but was really unhappy. And then when we were, you know, my wife and I were starting our businesses, um, we we were you know just like hand to mouth just kind of holding it together um but really happy and so i think really early on we both learned that money really you know is not correlated to happiness in any way whatsoever and actually to to lead a great life you need very little and that's i think been a really important kind of lesson that that we were glad to learn early on which um you know really changed the way that we think about what we want to do with our lives going forward. Um, a lot of people kind of come to that realization, but I think coming to it in your in your 20s is a, a huge advantage than coming to it in your 30s, 40s, 50s or, or later. Yeah. So one last point on this that I wanted to debate with you. I do have a counterpoint to that, though, that I think is interesting, um, which is that, and this is again, so I'm in my mid 30s. So um, a lot of my friends are in their 50s and a lot of people that I work with are in their 20s. And so I have a good understanding, I think, of different decades, although, of course, everyone's self-awareness index is very limited to their, their experience of the world. 
Um, but the more and more and more I've been thinking about this, you know, I have to say um, the counterpoint is a lot of people in their 20s um, seem to, I think, put a lot of weight on um, uh, picking the right job, picking the right thing, being quite serious too soon and taking themselves very seriously and actually start to forget the fact. And I say this as someone, my daughter's one, almost one and a half, right? I'm really got the life experience right now. I just went to America, told you, I went to America for a month with her, um, did some work, did some play. It was uh, extremely intense experience, I would say. And one of the things I've learned on was, you know, God, I'm so lucky. I've, I've traveled the world. I've had multiple jobs. I've tried loads of different startups. I've failed a bunch of times. I've lived in different places. Um, I feel like I've really lived and, you know, the sort of, there's no regrets, I suppose, is my point. Um, I feel like the world is there to be seen if you're privileged and lucky enough to have that curiosity, get to see different cultures, all this stuff. It gets a lot harder when you're married with kids and <laughs> finding roots and stuff. So I guess my counterpoint is, you know, I, I often think about this, like what would be my message for 20-somethings? And I'm always torn. On one side, it's like fight, find the thing that makes your heart sing, work really hard at it, grind it out, et cetera, et cetera, get all those lessons, stack them up, and you're going to have an exceptional life because you're going to learn these things a decade earlier than everyone else. On the other side, I sort of feel like, well, at the same time, life is there to be lived and your 20s should be carefree, fun, etc. Because, you know, that kind of doesn't stay <laughs> consistent if if and when you settle down. Like it becomes a lot harder to be sort of countercultural like that. Yeah, I'd say why not do both? <laughs> why not <laughs> do both? Yeah. <laughs> Fuck around and find out. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, um, you know, if you can if you can find something that allows you to um, to be playful and to experience many different things, you know, that's, that's like the, 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 the best possible path. Um, but at the same time, you know, the 10,000 hour rule applies. So if you're going to be an expert at something, you have to spend a lot of time getting really good at it and honing that skill. So, um, if you can figure out what it is that you want to be good at early, which to me means trying a lot of stuff and in your words, fucking around and finding out, then um, it allows you to get to the place where you can start that 10,000 hours early. And, and I know a lot of people who've racked up 10,000 hours in areas that they now don't care about and they've got to start yeah. again. And if they could have yeah. got to that realization 10 years earlier, you know, they'd be in a, in a wildly different place and, and would have been a lot happier through that journey as well. Um, but it's, again, you know, like it's, it's easy to say that when you've been lucky to be able to, to, to do it. Um, I think it's very hard for, you know, for a lot of people because it's just not an easy thing to to, to do and to get right. So I don't think there's a, you know, a, a single path that anyone should follow. I think it's about figuring out what's right for you and who you are and what your risk appetite is and, and what you want to achieve and what your personal circumstances look like as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, more more responsible messages like this, I think, in the entrepreneurship landscape, super helpful as well, right? Because otherwise, everyone's just said, just like, you know, everyone should be an entrepreneur. And I really don't <laughs> agree with that at all. You know, that's just like you said, some like, quite often, you know, the second or third, fifth, whatever it is, employee is, is a, actually a better option for a lot of people. Yeah. Like I said at the top, the years Simon and his co-founders spent developing the product before they even launched shows an amazing amount of patience and perseverance. But get a load of their growth journey after they launched. The first year we were three people, you know, two were getting paid. I wasn't getting paid. Um, we bootstrapped for the first nine years. I didn't get paid for the first 18 months that we were trading because it was more important to pay other people 
you know, I had, I was able to earn an income doing other stuff. Um, but we needed people in the business and you have to pay them to make that, that make that work. Um, so those, the, those first few years, we kind of, we tripled the size of the business every year. So we did that without any advertising again, you know, Facebook ads didn't exist, um, at that point in time. So the way that you built businesses was entirely different to how you do now, but we tripled the size of the business the first three years, then doubled the next two years after that. Um, and that got us to, you know, probably 18 months through that journey, we were still, 12 months, we're still trying to get into supermarkets. We thought that would be the path to scale. 18 months in, we said, actually, if we just double down and keep going on, you know, what we're doing now, this is going to be a business that can achieve much, much more than what we thought was possible through supermarkets in the first place. And so, we just focused on D2C. You know, we turned on Facebook ads about two years in once we had built enough of the operational kind of infrastructure that we needed to actually allow us to put more customers into the the company faster than what we were, um, you know, what they were coming in organically. Um, And then it just kind of took off from there. So I think the team sort of, you know, roughly grew at the same pace as the business. So we tripled in the first couple of years and then doubled every year after that. Um, And today, you know, that was, that crowdfunding campaign was, nine and a bit years ago today um we're about 220 people spread across i think seven countries nine time zones selling into the us the uk australia europe um and now with you know more products and we've just recently launched a a sister brand that sells shampoo conditioner and and body care under a brand called good time and do you share revenue figures we don't i think you know we've sold more than 300 million rolls i think we've sort of um grown yeah 10x over the last the last few years um and um yeah they're they're probably the three main metrics you know along with 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 people being the third one that gives sort of a sense of scale and then you know we donate half of our profits and have donated a bit over 11 million australian dollars which is you know roughly six to seven million pounds depending on what's happened with the exchange rate in the last couple of days because it's been a bit turbulent over the last month the 11 million pounds soon don't worry (laughs) yeah that's incredible though that i mean that must be genuinely that must be the most insanely rewarding thing personally so not talking even about like for the company but do you have moments where you are actually able to take stock of starting to make the kind of level of impact you're looking to make in the world like can you reflect on some of those moments like when the first moment for example where it really struck you where you were able to take space and consider that yeah i mean i think i think the first one was when we hit a million dollars in donations which you know like a million is a really big number when you're talking about money um and so it really hit home when, you know, WaterAid, our main partner that we're working with, you know, when they sort of said to us, hey, like, <laughs> you're going to become one of our kind of bigger supporters, um, which was just insane to think about, you know, the many, many companies and individual donors that, that support them and that, you know, we as a smaller company were able to start having that impact early. At the same time, um, you know, this is a problem that still affects 2 billion people. And that means that, you know, we're incredibly proud of the, you know, 10 something plus million dollars that we've donated, but there is a very long way to go if we're truly going to put a dent in this problem. And so that's when we think about, you know, where we're trying to get to from here and the type of scale that we have to to reach is actually going to mean that we need to take those donations from the tens of millions into the hundreds of millions and higher. We're not going to get there next year. You know, this is kind of the 30 year view, but but we're essentially trying to build, you know, the Kimberly Clark for, for good 
to to try and solve a problem rather than just return profits for our shareholders. Um, and I think they operate on a, something like a, a 20% EBITDA margin, which is huge because they've got amazing operational efficiency through their business. Um, if we could operate on a 20% EBITDA margin, then we'd be doing really well as a $20 billion business. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, a fair assumption. And when you say <laughs> 10, 20, 30 years, can you see yourself working in the same business 10, 20, 30 years? Or do you sometimes consider an exit to a, I'm going to just say Unilever on the basis of they're the only ones that everyone is aware of actually tend to care a lot about these social issues? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the way that we think about exit for us you know, so so our, our mission is to make sure everyone in the world has access to a toilet and clean water. The way that we think about any big decision in our business is, will it accelerate the path that we're on to achieve that mission? And so, you know, being acquired by a strategic would make sense for us if it enables us to go into more geographies than what we're able to by ourselves at a pace that's faster than that. And therefore, we can accelerate the path that we're on to that mission. Um, you know, when we kind of come back to, you know, the, the bigger vision beyond just, just clean water and toilet is, is about having the most impact that we possibly can. So an IPO is also potentially interesting because it, you know, if we could show that a business like ours could generate social impact at scale whilst also generating financial returns for shareholders at scale, then we think we could hopefully attract more entrepreneurs and more investors into this space that we're in to, you know, be a lighthouse and kind of inspire the next generation of, of founders to come along and build business models like ours, but even better. And so those, I think those are kind of the two places where an exit would be interesting, but we're not thinking about an exit. It's not, you know, it's not the, the reason why we got started. Um, we've intentionally, you know, we've brought investors into the business last year after nine years of, of bootstrapping. Um, part of the reverse due diligence that we did was making sure that everyone had an investment horizon that was more than 10 years because we don't want to be on a path to, 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 to sale. Um, and so a lot of our investors come from, you know, a family office style um, limited partner that that means that they're investing with up to, you know, 30, 40, 50 year horizon. And yeah, so, and you raised uh, just over $40 million, right? Yeah, 40 million, 41.5 Aussie. So um, I guess that'd be about 25 million pounds, maybe. Basically a lot of money. Yeah, which... Um, What's you know, it like I, to have a lot of money suddenly, like injected all <laughs> at once, I guess? Yeah, I think... I think um, yeah, it's 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 really strange. I think it's it's actually quite similar to I think when you have a lot of money as an individual for the first time. You know, when you look at your bank account, you're like, "There's a few extra zeros there," and that kind of gives you a bit of dopamine for the first you know week or two. But after that, the dopamine goes away, and you're just kind of operating as usual again. Um, and that was I think that was pretty true for the the fundraising experience was. Um, you know, our, our finance team was just like, I can't believe there's so many zeros in our bank account, which is amazing. Um, but after a while, you know, it just became normal and it's part of our kind of our operating. I think what it, what it, what it did that was really good was it, it allowed us to be um, a bit more kind of, um, you know, aggressive with how we were running the business, which was really handy as we went into a lot of the supply chain challenges over the last 18 months, which you know, I think everyone would, would be aware of. Um, we sell toilet paper. It's a bulky, low value product. So we, we get affected, you know, right at the pointy end of the supply chain challenges. And so having a big balance sheet made it easier to, to think about, you know, what are the strategies that we could execute through this period? Talk to me about the 
Uh, well, I was going to say, talk to me about the worst moment in in your building the journey, but obviously that's just quite specific. Is there one that pops up? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a few different worst moments. I think the kind of first worst moment that we ever had was with our very first production run where, um, you know, my background is in engineering, but electrical engineering, not manufacturing engineering. And at the time I was the only person in the business that was there, you know, 30 to 40 hours a week. And so I did our, our first quality control and our first production run um, by myself. Honestly, I thought I'd done a pretty good job. And it wasn't until, you know, several months later that we landed that product and started shipping it out to our customers that our customers started writing in saying, hey, I loved your crowdfunding campaign. I waited really patiently for my product. I love the brand. I love the packaging. I love the impact, everything you stand for but I can't tear the sheets apart without a pair of scissors. And in that moment, I realized that I'd managed to produce 200,000 rolls of imperfectly perforated toilet paper that, you know, couldn't be torn apart very easily at all. Um, And that was devastating because, you know, it was this huge moment and we'd worked so hard to get to that point and then to stuff it up with this thing that was so fundamental, but, you know, somewhat easy to miss if you weren't kind of an industry expert um, meant that, um, yeah, we kind of, you know, almost blew it. And I think in that instance, I knew that the only thing I could do was put up my hand and, and apologize to everyone and say, hey, I'm so sorry. You know, you've believed in this crazy idea that 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 we've told you about. You've put money behind it. You've waited patiently. And I've gone and screwed this up and made this fundamental error that's created a product that kind of sucks. But I think that this idea is too good to let pass up from this one mistake. I'd love it if you could come back and believe in us one more time because we're going to get the perforations right the next time around. And luckily enough, customers came back and bought from us again and, you know, went on to tell other people about what we were doing. I think we learned in that moment the power of bringing our customer along for the journey and sharing that we are human and we will make mistakes and we will continue to make mistakes. But... um, really kind of showing them how much we're thinking about things and caring about things that, you know, when we do get things wrong, we will work incredibly hard to try and get, you know, set it right and, and, and get things back on track. Um, and so we talk about that internally now as this mantra of our customers will forgive us for our lumps and our bumps as long as we're open and honest about them. Cool. Okay, so um, just to sort of wrap up the interview, um, I'd love to know just a little bit more about you. Um, how would you describe yourself? I'm a folder. <laughs> I'm a folder. <laughs> Not amazing. A I've never never heard someone <laughs> never heard someone answer so quickly, right? So you're basically just describing your uh, your toilet habits. Is that an internal <laughs> cultural culture thing, by the way? Yeah. So it's something we ask every employee when they join us, and um, and I think some people, you know, find it a bit challenging to answer. Not or, or also don't realize that it's going to get sent out to everyone in the company on their first day. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's re- it's it's really interesting because we see that uh, about sixty percent of the company are folders, forty percent are scrunches. Uh, our finance team over indexes on folders, our creative team over indexes on scrunches. Um, and we discovered that that recently that someone who'd been with us for a while, they thought we were asking, you know, they said, I'm a, I'm a scruncher. And then they had this moment in Slack when they realized what we were actually talking about. And they said, oh no, I thought you were asking me whether I folded my clothes or just scrunched them up and threw them into the wardrobe. <laughs> and so- They're a the, scruncher? <laughs> they are a scruncher. That's um, actually more embarrassing to tell everyone that, to be honest with you. 
Yeah, but but it's a really. I think we have now got the largest data set of of you know toilet paper users in the world to determine whether people are actually folders or scrunchers, which is something that we may may release in the near future. <laughs> Love it. Okay. Um, final question: What is the best? Well, it's a two parter. What's the best advice you've ever received, and what is your advice for other entrepreneurs listening who want to be inspired by to go on their own journeys? Yeah, the best advice I've ever received is probably the many people that have said along the way, you can't do that. Um, and I think that's the best advice because in some instances, it's made me realize how incredibly wrong they are and that I need to go and prove them wrong. And in other instances, it's made me pause and think, actually, maybe this isn't such a good idea. And so, you can't do that, I think, is a really amazing thing to hear because it forces this moment of reflection and then you have to choose whether you you know disagree and commit and use that you can't do that as a motivation to prove someone wrong versus um you know challenge your point of view and realize that actually maybe you're going down the wrong path and so i love being told you can't do that because it creates this environment where you sort of have this fork in the road and you have to decide which direction you're going in advice for someone else um i think is to to honestly just get started i think that um you know the journey of entrepreneurship no one gets it right first time round i mean there's probably a handful of people that have but but they'd be in a very 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 you know small fraction of a percentage um and you learn so much from just getting out there and giving something a shot and seeing how people interact with it seeing if they do it in a way that is what you're expecting or what you are not expecting or maybe do something you'd never even imagined um you know, we've had our toilet paper used as wedding cakes and people get a roll of toilet paper instead of a slice of cake. And seeing things like that happen helps you understand that um, you're going in the right direction and that you can, you know, you can push the boundaries of what's possible with the way that you bring things to life. Um, and so just getting started, taking that first step, I think is the hardest. And then once you've done that, the second step, the third step become a lot easier so just getting out there and giving it a shot is probably the, the biggest piece of advice that I give to everyone. And use toilet paper as wedding cake instead. <laughs> yeah, and, and to not sit on a toilet for 50 hours. That's the other big piece of advice that I would give to people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, amazing. Simon, thank you so much for your time. Uh, like I said, I was really excited for this interview. Thank you for not disappointing. It's been brilliant. Yeah, thank you. It's been great to chat. Simon Griffiths, CEO and co-founder of Who Gives a Crap? Like I said, his answer to my final question about advice is incredible because a lot of people react to someone telling them not to do something by doubling down, using those negative comments as fuel to keep going. But what Simon is saying is that we can use those moments as a moment for introspection. That is a bit of a gift because it can give us an opportunity to reflect on our decisions and if we want to keep going, well we feel even better about it. And whilst I was expecting someone committed to the cause, I was really struck by just how honest and decent Simon is. Not necessarily what you expect from someone who has had so much success. He's an example for other entrepreneurs, showing you can change how the world works, that philanthropy isn't the only way to support people. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan Murray Serta. The episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolomon. We're taking a bit of a break, but we're going to be back in January with more fascinating interviews with the world's top entrepreneurs. See you then.